Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is physical therapist, Dr. Stephanie Munt. She is a PT and running coach based in Tempe, Arizona, and she specializes in the rehabilitation and coaching of runners with an emphasis on bone stress injuries, hip labral tears, and eating disorders. And she is the perfect guest to have for our topic today, which is bone health and bone stress injuries in runners. Although we hope as runners that injuries never flare up, unfortunately they sometimes do. And bone stress injuries can be one of the most confusing and sometimes frustrating injuries in a runner might experience. So today, Steph is gonna to talk to us about our bones, bone health, bone stress injuries, what we need to know, how we can improve our bone health, and ways to take preventative action in case we are concerned about our bone health as runners. Steph, Dr. Munt, welcome <laughs> to the show. Excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I am stoked to be here as well. So tell us, how did you become a runner? I started jogging with my parents in probably fourth or fifth grade. And I remember one summer I made it, you know, 10 minutes and then I would walk. And then the next summer I was able to go further than my mom. So it just kind of evolved gradually um, over time there. Joined the cross country team in middle school and track teams and uh, then just kind of fell in love with it, had some success and kept going. That's great. Did you know that you wanted to be a physical therapist because you were a runner or did that happen separately? No, I didn't. I actually thought I was going to be a vet. Um, I actually worked at an equine sports medicine clinic in Kentucky for a summer and then decided that wasn't going to be the route for me and uh, turned or steered toward physical therapy. And I had been in physical therapy during college, so I had experience with it. Um, and uh, after I just kind of transitioned that way, it just really, really fit. And I worked in a PT clinic and loved the environment there to all of our benefit, because now you're here to educate us about bones and bone health for performance and runners and all the things that we runners need to know about our bones. So I like to start all my topics, kind of the, the base education of the thing, and then we'll branch out into some, you know, more, more complex and more complicated parts of the topic. So let's start up our bones. Tell us what, what are our bones made of? What are some of the most common misconceptions that you hear people say when they talk about their bones? Ooh, this is a good one. So bones are made of lots of different minerals and uh, collagen, just a, a lot of different things. But the remodeling process for bone is really cool. It's a highly metabolic tissue. So we constantly have bone breakdown and bone remodeling. And I like to, you know, think of this as like, a, I think of them as little like Pac-Man type structures. <laughs> so when you have these, these targeted remodeling units that are activated by actually bone damage. So a certain level of bone damage is healthy and we need it. If you don't do any movement, any loading or mechanical loading, which means like 
weight bearing or muscles pulling on the bone create mechanical strain as well. If you don't do any of that, your bones start to lose strength. You don't get that remodeling. So once we do things that creates this little bit of damage, it's a stimulus for the targeted remodeling process. And you have these little osteoclasts that come in and take away the damaged bone and then osteoblasts that then come in after that and lay down new bone. So this is a really important process, but it also creates this kind of window of porosity or more space in the bone. And and those windows are where we can get into trouble and or if we don't allow enough recovery between this mechanical stimulus, um, that's where we can start to see more bone breakdown than, than bone building and start to develop things like stress fractures. I think anybody who's watched any sort of medical drama knows the phrase remodeling, right? If anybody's watched the show Bones, right? We think of, oh, we can see this remodeling here. And generally, that's in reference to a, a site of an actual fracture. Like, oh, I can tell that this little girl broke her arm because I can see the remodeling, right, mm-hmm. in this. But you're saying that this remodeling process is kind of constant and ongoing just as part of our everyday, how our body functions and, and uh, improves. Yeah, exactly. It is. And even in asymptomatic populations, they've done studies on collegiate runners where they'll actually see, you know, a bone stress injury is kind of the term now because not all bone injuries are fractures. So there's a spectrum from uh, swelling or edema of the lining of the bone called the periosteum, and then you get bone marrow edema, and then and it shows up on different images to grade it appropriately, like a, a more mild or more severe bone stress injury, and then you end up with a fracture line eventually down the down the road. But in this study, they actually found that there was early signs of bone stress injury or the periosteal edema, bone marrow edema in people who didn't have any pain. So you see this remodeling process going on because they're active and loading. But the, the turnover and the process is a healing process is occurring fast enough that they don't have symptoms. So it's, it's constantly ongoing. And that's why one of the reasons I think bone stress injuries can be really hard to diagnose and really hard to treat because they present so differently in different people. So when you're talking about loading, so like loading tissues, what does that mean when it comes to our bones? So that means putting stress or strain through them. So we often think of like jumping and weight bearing activity, and you might have heard the term like ground reaction forces thrown around here and there. And those are stimulating for bone, but uh, more recent studies have actually shown that it's the muscle contraction on the bone that creates the most strain. So you can actually load your bone, say that you you are healing from bone stress injury, or for some reason you can't be weight bearing. You can load your bone still by doing non-weight bearing exercises that, that your muscles are contracting and creating a stimulus on the bone. Now that stimulus is going to be a lot bigger if you're doing weight bearing activity, um, but it's actually the, the misconception is that it's the forces that challenge bone the most, but it's actually the muscles pulling on the bone. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, that's that's what I thought. I was thinking, yeah, you mean you, you strike the ground, you know, you're putting, you know, on a single foot, multiple times your body weight in that impact force. I would then assume, right, as that force, you know, your body has to do something with it, that would be a stimulus for, for it would be stress or strain, yeah. but that is only one part of the picture. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. See, I've already learned something and we're like six <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> 
So talk to us a bit about bone health in the context of runners. I mean, I don't think it's in dispute that, you know, running is really good for your bones, but as you've said, we have to make sure that it's done in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about bone health, like what does that mean? What are we striving for? There's a lot of different measures of bone health, and I don't think that we fully understand all the different parameters that go into it. Um, the easiest thing to measure or, or what we measure most is BMD, bone mineral density. And a DEXA scan or dual X-ray, see if I say this right, absorptriometry, <laughs> just DEXA. <laughs> um, that's what measures that. And it provides you with uh, generally for, or for ages 20 to 50, a Z-score. Um, there are also measures of bone mineral content, bone geometry that all play into your bone's ability to resist or tolerate loading. Um, but the, the thing that we look at most, I'd say right now in the research, and then just what we have access to from, a a, um, imaging perspective is the bone mineral density. And uh, yeah, just, just, to, to kind of finish up why that's important, um, the lower your bone mineral density, the the poorer bone health you have, the more at risk you are for fractures. And um, of course, you know that impacts us runners because we have more time off, or that impacts our mental health uh, and and also physical health. But long term, the kind of the zoomed out view is we we know after you have a hip fracture as a you know whatever age in your older age, you're more likely to um, pass away within the next several years. So a higher mortality rate among those who have a high fracture risk, unfortunately. So it's not just this this view of like oh this is really hard, I have to take a season off or miss this race. It's more of like how can we optimize this so that I have a higher quality of life. 30, 40 years down the road. Is there a subset of the running population who you, uh, who you know to be at higher risk for lower bone density? Yeah. The biggest risk factor, well, one, one that's uncontrollable is being female. Um, it's not fully, uh, known why that is. My guess is because of the relationship between low energy availability, history of eating disorder. And, you know, we do see that in males, of course. Um, however, it's more, uh, the incidence is higher in females when that, that relationship with low bone mineral density, I think is what creates that risk in females. But that's one of the biggest things is, um, that we, that we know for sure. There's a lot of like, maybe this contributes, maybe this doesn't, but for sure we have a lot of evidence that low energy availability, history of eating disorder, particularly anorexia nervosa, increase your risk for fracture. I do know of the of the little that I know about bone health. I do know that uh, adolescence and puberty is a really key time for developing stronger bones, and that we look at the incidence of, like you said, low energy availability, disordered eating, eating disorders, and especially in um, adolescent female athletes. Right, if they're amenorrheic, right, so loss of period, mm-hmm. it interrupts a really really key period of their life that is important for establishing the bone health and density they need going into adulthood, uh, which can then down the road really cause issues. And so I think even for, you know, listening to this and thinking back to my own adolescent self who struggled with disordered eating, I was like, oh, gee, like I, I probably didn't do the best that I could for my bones at the time. But it's interesting to think about this, that bone is still a living tissue. And just because you were went through a period where maybe you weren't taking good care of your bones and maybe you did miss the optimal window for bone health establishment, that doesn't mean that you're stuck with that for the rest of your life. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a big misconception. Um, of course, it is ideal to optimize your bone mineral density during those formative years. And we typically reach peak bone mineral density before age 25. And and so I understand why that's been um, discussed as, you know, you need to do this during this time. However, I personally have, and I have several athletes I've worked with who have improved their bone mineral density after age 25, even into their fifties. So this isn't something that, you know, it can be really easy to look back and feel guilty or shameful that, you know, maybe you didn't take care of, we didn't take care of ourselves because we didn't know any better. Um, but you can start now and, uh, you can improve your bone density and set yourself up for a, a better quality of life in the future. For runners who have had zero history of bone stress injuries at all, how much attention do they need to pay to this? That's a great question. Typically, after a certain age, so in in masters athletes, we don't typically see runners get their first bone stress injury. Not to say that it can't happen, um, but once you have one bone stress injury, your risk for another increases by 50%. And so for whatever reason, you know, there's multiple factors that go into it, go into it. Um, you know, sometimes taking time off negatively impacts your bone mineral density, although it's necessary. Um, you might change how you're loading your structure. Um, lots of, lots of different things go into that. But so for those who, who have never had a bone stress injury, if they, other things that contribute to good bone health, if they have a normal DEXA, if they played ball sports as an adolescent, I'm always so pumped to hear if someone played soccer or basketball because that decreases your risk of a fracture also by 50% in the future if you played ball sports as a kid. Um, So if they've got all those factors, I'm less inclined to worry about it. However, there's always the case that if they're starting to run more and they get in an energy deficit, become amenorrheic or dysmenorrheic, that that it could happen. So still want to take these precautions. But if you reach, you know, 35, 40, 45 without having a bone stress injury and you've been continuously running, uh, I'm less concerned about it uh, occurring. The reason I bring this up is because I think sometimes in our space, there is this desire to optimize the crap out of absolutely everything <laughs> to like, maybe, you know, obviously it's something we should be you know aware of. Do I want to have my bones be really healthy and strong? Of course I do. Do I need to go pay out of pocket for a whole bunch of preventative stuff that I may not need? Not necessarily. So it's like, I think in this, you know, on my show, we talk all the time about mastering the basics. Are you eating enough? Is your training load appropriate? Are you strength training? Like this all ties back to, look, if nothing's happened so far, just like keep doing what you're doing and master the basics because the fundamentals are going to be, well, they're fundamental for a reason. Yeah. Oh gosh, absolutely. And if you, you know, of course the, the case can be true that you may be in an energy surplus and you may not have no history of eating disorder. You could still have a bone stress injury from other things. And, and most of the time we can't find, you know, the specific answer. Um, but I, I totally agree with the, if you haven't had a bone stress injury, if you've had one bone stress injury and it was in a low risk site, there's no need for you to rush out and get a DEXA. Um, your bone density is more than likely normal. Um, and if you don't have a history of anorexia nervosa or other eating disorder. So talk to us about the things that we can, like you said, you know, working with athletes who maybe have had, uh, less dense bones, poor bone mineral density, you can improve that past the age of 25. What are some of the factors or things that go into doing that? 
one of the big things, if and when appropriate, is actually weight gain. Um, there's a strong correlation between weight gain and improvements in bone mineral density. Uh, that's what worked for me, um, in addition to, uh, to other things, but I think that was the biggest factor, as well as some other athletes I've worked with who were in an osteoporotic range. So combination of weight gain, strength training, and then nutrition is, is actually probably even more foundational. It goes hand in hand with weight gain. Um, but those two, as well as sometimes supplementation, it's ideal to get your vitamin D and calcium from your diet if you can. But supplementation can be necessary. And then strength training and plyometrics can also help improve bone mineral density. So I'm going to, we're talking about density. I'm just curious. Um, Is this bone mineral density, is this literally decreased porosity or are we increasing the actual like circumference of some of our bones or like A and B? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. No, it's specific to the porosity. So when you have osteoporosis, you will see basically like greater gaps between this kind of like web of of bone minerals. So it'll be like there will be more holes in between, which makes it more susceptible to fracture. Whereas when the bone is more dense and compact, now there are two types of bone in each of our bones there's cortical which is more compact anyway and then there's trabecular which is a little bit more like spongy and has more gaps Um, but all to say just when you have osteoporosis or osteopenia you basically have more holes more space between those um, lines of of bone and uh, so we're trying to decrease that and make the bones more dense not necessarily like uh bigger I'm trying to just imagine somebody trying to get like Hulk bones, right? (laughs) Just super solid. Yeah. That's not how we're, that's not what we're looking for. (laughs) Um, So for runners who do, who know that they have osteopenia or maybe have a family history of osteoporosis, what are some things that they should be aware of in being runners with those things and they're uh, going on with their bones. So first, if you if you know that, I think getting DEXAs every two years is important. Um, and what is a DEXA? That is the dual X-ray absorptiometry yeah. <laughs> machine. So essentially, it it scans your body, a part part of your body. Usually, they do spine, left hip, and left forearm and measures the density of your bone and then it gives you a score and for athletes who are premenopausal age typically age 20 to 50 um, we look at z-score instead of t-score and there's some discrepancies because this was created for um, elder individuals and compares people to others of the same age and demographic so um, there's been some controversy over its use, and they use a T-score for those old, for the older population. There's been some controversy in its use in these younger populations, but the current uh, evidence, although we'll go into some proposed changes shortly, but the current evidence is that a Z-score between negative 2 and 0 is considered, quote, normal. Um, with that said, it's a standard deviation, so 0 is technically, like, the norm. That means you're you're pretty much equal to people your age and demographic. Um, but the International Olympic Committee and the American College of Sports Medicine state that negative one and above is what we should require for athletes because we should have stronger bones to tolerate the load we're undergoing, which is different from maybe, quote, like general population. Um, but there's some recent uh proposals that we change it to high impact athletes, including distance running or continuous load athletes, I guess, 
where zero and above would be ideal. That means you're average, basically, or above average in terms of your bone density compared to everyone else your age and, and demographic. So there's there's still a lot of, of, I think, confusion, but I want my athletes to be above zero. And so coming back to the question, if you have a history of osteoporosis in your family, or if you know you have osteopenia or osteoporosis, making sure you're tracking that every two years, if you can on the same machine to see if there is improvement and just to have some information for you and your coach of like, okay, this is, this is what we have to work with not in like a shamey way, because it also gives you an age comparison, like an age match, which is completely disempowering. Like if you look at this paper and it's like age match, you have the same bones as an 83 year old, like ignore that. That doesn't mean you're 83 years old, your bones are 83. The system's not not set up perfectly, but um, just to have an indicator of, of general, one measure really of bone health. Um, and in people who are, you know, a little bit smaller bone, a little more petite, it is probably going to be a bit lower. Um, but I still like for, to have that information and for athletes to be at zero or above. And then and what is that, sorry. what does that actually mean? Like, what is, what is the Z score? Like, what is that a measurement of? It's looking at the, the actual density. It does like these, uh, it draws lines on there. <laughs> it does actual like calculations based on um, this geometrical measurement and algorithm of what your bone mineral density is from the image that it took. Very cool. I know because sometimes when you think like, well, what is it measuring? What's the range? If it's like, well, if I want to be a zero, I want to be a negative one or I want to be a one. Uh, like, what's the range? Like, what is the like, oh, holy crap, that's not good range. And then what's the, oh, my God, you do have Hulk bones range. <laughs> I, I would say one plus one and above would be like, oh, you're, that's awesome. You're looking good. Anything less than negative one in a runner is a little bit concerning. Um, what where we might get into trouble is still the general consensus for those who aren't, you know, paying attention to the International Olympic Committee or the the new guidelines ish or the new proposals is you could have a negative two and a provider might be like, oh, negative two. Yeah, that's within normal, but it's not for a runner. So I think that's that's an important distinction. Anything below negative two point five is considered osteoporosis. Um, but someone might tell you you're, you look normal at negative 1.8 and really that's, that's not ideal. Sure. It's, but it's within normal, but you're still two standard deviations below the norm for your age. There are many factors that go into having good bone health, but one of those key factors is making sure that you have enough of the proper micronutrients available so that your bones can be as healthy and strong as possible. You might think that the most important thing to bone health is calcium, but it's not the only micronutrient that your bones need. Vitamin D, magnesium, boron, and silicon all play really important roles in maintaining and supporting your bone health. And if you're wondering if you're getting enough of that in your diet and how to cover your bases if you're not, that's when taking a multivitamin manufactured to pharmaceutical grade standards with clinically effective ingredients could help, like the multivitamin mineral and antioxidant plus multivitamin from Prevenex. Prevenex's multivitamin is the most complete and comprehensive multivitamin on the market. Not only does it contain exactly what it says it contains, which not all supplements can say that, it also contains the most bioavailable forms of those ingredients as well. Look, I know that we all wish we got everything we needed from our beautifully colorful, wonderful, perfect diet, but we're human. We're busy, we got a lot going on, we're runners. We only have so many hours in the day, and sometimes it's okay to need a little extra help. 
And now you can try Provenex's multivitamin, mineral, and antioxidant plus and save 15% today using code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P to save 15% off your order on Prevenex.com. We've had this com- a similar conversation about other metrics, like talking about iron and ferritin levels. Yeah. And like the general population guidelines are basically like you're healthy until you're very sick right and as runners we're not we if we get into the the like you said that low end of the range it's like well that's not for us right mm-hmm. actually that is low if you are running 40 miles a week and your bone density is negative 1.8 like uh-oh <laughs> you mm-hmm. know um as opposed to like you said kind of that general population guideline where your doctor might not be as concerned Right. Yeah. So if, if you're out there and you do get this red and it is negative 1.8 and someone tells you like, oh, that's totally fine. Don't worry about it. You know, I would suggest getting a second opinion, not freaking out, but getting a second opinion. Yeah. Maybe from somebody who's used to working with, like you said, those high impact, uh, what is it? Uh, continuous loading athletes. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we are that. <laughs> that is us. <laughs> um, I want to talk about bone stress injuries, which I'm going to be honest with you. I assume that's why the vast majority of listeners are tuning into this episode specifically because bone stress injuries, as we used to call them, stress fractures are, uh, scary and a big deal for runners who experience them. And you've already mentioned briefly kind of different types of bone stress injuries, but just go ahead and educate us about, you know, where, where are we on what we know about bone stress injuries today? So we still have a lot of I don't want to say misinformation, but a lot of uh, poor evidence for the causes. Um, And we know, though, that it is super multifactorial and each person can tolerate a certain amount of load in different ways before they might undergo um, a bone stress injury. Um, But the foundation really is your, your bone's ability to tolerate load. So that bone density, bone content, bone geometry, all of those things factor in um, to your risk for bone stress injuries. And there's Differences in high risk versus moderate versus low risk sites. And uh, there's also differences in risk for those. So we see there's, I mentioned the two types of bone earlier. Um, So trabecular sites are more sensitive to changes in estrogen and changes in hormones and more sensitive to like energy deficiency. So um, you might be at higher risk for bone stress injuries of like the sacrum, pelvis, calcaneus. Those are all sites that have more trabecular bone. If you are in an energy deficit or have an eating disorder or have low bone mineral density or all three. Um, So that, that we do know as far as mechanics, muscle strength. Um, training, surface, footwear, there's just a lot of mixed evidence. We don't have clear guidelines for any of those influencing bone stress injury risk. So a lot of unknowns, but the, the knowns come back to kind of like you, you brought up the foundations. Sleep definitely plays a role in bone remodeling, nutrition, and recovery and logical training progressions. It can be frustrating for runners who are experiencing a bone stress injury to look at what somebody else is doing. And like we, I, I talk all the time, like you can't compare yourself to anybody else. Like they just don't even, it's going to probably always end a disappointment, but to look at, oh, first of all, I'll say oftentimes with bone stress injuries, the, the assumption is that it's something that I did to cause this. Like this is my fault, right? That I did something. And then we get really obsessed about trying to figure out exactly what it was, right? So we can fix it. So it never happens again. And I understand that desire 
because it sucks to go through a bone stress injury. But as you said, the causes are multifactorial. There's likely no one single cause, just a confluence of multiple factors that happened to hit you at this time when you were vulnerable and here we are. Bone stress injuries as, well, like, why did this happen to me and it didn't happen to my friend when my friend runs so much more than me or my friend, you know, does all these stupid things and I do all the smart (laughs) things, like, you know, um, and, but it really comes down to that overload. Whatever it was, it was just overloaded, which I think is a really tough concept because as I've talked about previously, like our systems develop at different rates. And so often as endurance owners, we're focused on, you know, my lungs and my aerobic capacity and did it feel challenging? And we forget that there are all these structural components, literally our bones and our muscles that are playing catch up. And so if we're like, well, I ran 10 miles this week and or 10 miles last week and 20 miles this week, and I'm going to run 40 miles next week and my lungs feel great. Your bones are like, okay, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, there's a quote from a 2017 article because I, I agree with you that, and, and have been there too with multiple bone stress injuries of like, what is the thing? What do I have to do? Just, you know. I just have to follow this program and I'll be totally fine or just give me the magic formula and what did I do wrong? Um, But there's a quote by, there was this new kind of algorithm or paradigm of running related injuries. And I think this is so important because we see so much on, you know, social media or are told by clinicians too, that there's this one thing, like you pronate too much or anything like that. And the quote, I'm going to, it's not going to be perfect to be paraphrased, but essentially running related injuries do not occur due to poor mechanics high or low BMI or footwear, they occur when you're, you reach a, or you're, again, I knew I was going <laughs> to push your head up. when a runner hits basically the limit of their tolerance or they're susceptible, they're susceptible to a, a certain um, type of injury and they reach their threshold for that injury or they're exposed to a level of running that their, their cumulative risk profile heightens the risk for injury for or something like that. Um, but all to say that, yeah, we can't blame one thing. And uh, it's it's always this, this combination of factors. And it's often feels unfair. And I've been there with, if you have a propensity for any injury, really, not just bone stress, but unfair of, you know, how come, like you said, my friend can run this much and I can't, or I need to do things differently. Maybe I need to be more intentional about sleep than anyone else I know. Um, but that's where a coach can be really helpful too, of, of helping you put all these factors together and hold you back when you start to get a little excited, jump to that 40 miles per week. Um, but, uh, but I see this too, when you're coming back from injury, you know, people will just kind of go back to where they were. And like you said, you forget that bones need progressive, uh, gradual loading in order to adapt just like muscles too, but bone stress injuries occur three to eight weeks generally after a change in training. So they're going to be something that sneaks up. You know, you might change your training a month ago and then your BSI hits later. So you don't attribute it to the change a month ago, but that's how long it takes for the bones to catch up. I actually wanted to ask you specifically about that because that's that's something I think that really blindsides a lot of people because they start a, a new training cycle or they download a new plan or they're going after this new goal and the first couple of weeks go really well and they're like six weeks in and they think, yeah, like I'm nailing this. And then like you said, boom, now we have a bone stress injury and it 
like so like these chronic overuse injuries it feels like it comes out of nowhere and i think it's very important to remind people that this builds very slowly over time you know this isn't the football field you know we're not we're not playing contact sports here this is not like somebody slammed into me on the hockey rink and like blew out my knee this is these these little tiny things just like escalate run over run mile by mile i don't say this to freak you out right but to say like it's not, it didn't happen suddenly, even though it feels like it happened suddenly. Like you said, it's just on this run, on this day, you hit that limit of your tolerance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it is, it's not just the training load or change of training three to eight weeks ago. Maybe it was, you know, your baby was sick and you didn't sleep for three days, <laughs> three to eight weeks ago. And bones are on this remodeling cycle that occurs every three to four weeks. And that kind of opens up that window, like we talked about earlier, of a little bit more porosity, thinking about between when the osteoclasts come in and break it down and when the osteoblasts come in and put new bone down, you have this window of more susceptibility, which is why we try to build in deload weeks too. But if, you know, sleep is missed or you're sick or anything else occurs that might just just slow your bone remodeling down the tiniest bit during that window of susceptibility, then it's going to have trouble recovering. And yeah, like you said, it might might hit you three or four weeks later, same random, but it's not. Listeners, this is why me and coaches and physical therapists, doctors like Steph are going to always tell you, like, don't run when you're sick, back off your training if you're not sleeping well, like when life stress is high, you can't train as much, like we're not being mean, (laughs) we're trying to prevent you from getting injured. Absolutely. Yes, it's all out of love. We care about you. (laughs) Talk to me more about these different risk sites, because you said that there are some sites, like, I I don't want to say like, oh, you know, oh, these types of bone stress injuries, like just, you know, they just happen. But are there, are there areas of the body where a bone stress injury might occur? And it's kind of like, yeah, that, that just could be from, you know, that might just happen versus another site where you're like, okay, this, this is a lot more serious. Cause I know that in order for a bone stress injury to occur in this location, we've got to have a lot of stuff that went wrong simultaneously. Yeah, I think, it's it's definitely more likely to have them in areas like the femoral neck, sacrum, pelvis, calcaneus, those trabecular areas, if you are having difficulty with energy availability, nutrition. So that might be kind of a, a red flag sign. If you have an athlete who gets one of those or comes to you with one of those, those are, those are things to look into more, ask questions about nutrition, hormones, um, stress even. Um, but as far as high versus low risk sites, that's based on the blood flow to the area essentially. So how likely it is to heal on its own without surgical intervention. So as physical therapists, recognizing the high risk sites is really important to get imaging and then get them non-weight bearing as soon as possible. Because if you're walking around on a femoral neck stress fracture, it could turn into a fracture and you might need surgery. If you're walking around on a fibular stress fracture, you're probably not going to need surgery. So there, there are these different risk levels where it's like, okay, we need to get imaging sooner. We need to get you off your feet sooner. Whereas other areas like, like fibula, like I mentioned, um, 
your even the, the calcaneus even though it's a trabecular site that's a lower risk the metatarsal shafts and then the what we call the posterior medial tibia so similar to where you feel shin splints those are all areas with really good blood flow and you can likely continue your daily activities provided they're low levels or no pain without any risk of this becoming a serious issue Whereas if you kept doing that with a, a navicular bone stress injury or um, medial malleolus inside of the ankle or um, femoral neck, as mentioned earlier, those could easily turn into a bad situation that, that takes you out of sport for a long time or, or even changes your, your sport trajectory forever. Uh, and this, obviously, then I think the logical conclusion is that the, this is why the uh, timeline for bone stress injury healing is so broad. Like patient A, runner A might have like a four to six weeks return to run timeline, you know, of, of taking time away. Runner B might have like eight to 12 minimum weeks before reassessment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that also then it's not just the site, but also the grade. So kind of like coming back to, to earlier with the periosteal edema to bone marrow edema, there's different grades as well. So we can't treat all these the same. If you have an actual fracture line, that's going to be a grade four. Um, that's going to take longer to heal than one that's maybe a grade two or you just have bone marrow edema. It's caught earlier with uh without a fracture line. So another reason for us clinicians to be really astute because if we catch these at grade two, then the the healing timeline, the recovery timeline is, you know, probably cut in half then rather than having someone continue or pushing off imaging until it becomes a grade four or a full fracture line. And is that, so are there four grades? Yeah, there are different classification systems. The one that is probably most frequently referenced in literature is the Fredrickson classification. It was specifically made for tibial bone stress injuries, um, but is often applied to other sites as well. How often do you get people coming in with a grade one? <laughs> Not, I, I don't think people generally present with that they'll they'll either be like oh there's just something kind of achy or um or if they have a history of bone stress injury then they might um and so we i think the athlete themselves has to be pretty cognizant of what it might be in order to even seek treatment for generally that level of pain um with that said if it's a high risk site um with you know femoral neck they might be able to catch it as a stress reaction a very early stress reaction um but i think most of the time people runners especially right they're gonna keep running until they can't so by that time it's generally progressed to, to either a later stage stress reaction or an actual stress fracture I've definitely worked with athletes in the past who, you know, have had something going on. And so they'll go to the doctor and they'll get x-rays and the doctor says, well, I don't see any fractures, so you must be fine. And then I always say, okay, but I still want you to go to PT. <laughs> like, cause mm-hmm. clearly something's not fine. If you were, if we were so concerned that we, you went to the doctor to get x-rays, um, clearly this rises beyond the level of like, ah, I'm sure it's nothing. Yeah. But but there is a there is a problem here because you know it's challenging to diagnose some of these if you can't see it. So mm-hmm. how do we do that? And that I'm so glad you brought that up because x-rays are not great at diagnosing bone stress injuries. They're actually fairly useless when you look at the sensitivity <laughs> and specificity. So unless it's it's been six to eight weeks and your body's also already got a calcification going, um, it's not gonna recognize them. And some actually some sites like navicular, MRIs can be negative at first too. So 
they're tricky. So um, I always have, if, if an x-ray is negative and you still have concern, I always refer them for an MRI. And a lot of the, the doctors that I have in my network are more conservative and uh, they will automatically do that. They're like, let's get the x-ray first and then we'll send for an MRI. But you might have to advocate for your for your clients that way and say, hey, I still have concern. X-ray is not super great at detecting this. Um, you know, you might have also heard that like a tuning fork or ultrasound can detect them, but they're also not great. Um, MRI is the gold standard. Which sucks because, you know, hello, America, MRIs are expensive and tough to schedule. And I mean, I, I think for a lot of runners, you know, they don't have the means to schedule like a well, I mean, it might be nothing, but just in case, I'm going to go get an MRI to see if it's something. And I mean, we have to acknowledge that there is a huge barrier to treatment and barrier to diagnosis for a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So if an athlete decides, and this is where I think working with someone who is knowledgeable about these is so helpful because you can give an athlete that option, right? Like, hey, we can either treat this. I, I would prefer you get the MRI. You know, we, we can either move forward confidently knowing that it's not. That's the worst case scenario. Or we know and then we can set a, a return to run from BSI program. But if you choose not to, um, especially if it's a high risk site, we're going to treat this as such. And then we'll see how it plays out over the next few weeks. Of course, it's it's always better to know. But I, yeah, I agree. I, I totally understand that barrier to treatment. Um, and I do know here in Arizona, at least cash rates for MRIs are like 250. So it's worth calling. I don't think it's that way in other states, but but it's worth calling if your insurance is going to be charging you $1,200. It's worth calling and asking what their cash rate is because it's generally a little bit better. Yes, especially if this is like technically like it's not I mean, it's diagnostic, but it's not like medically necessary right? For a lot of people, like if I were to call up my local, you know, whatever, and say, I'd like to get an MRI on my ankle because I have this concern, like that probably wouldn't be covered by insurance. But like you said, ask the cash rate, ask if they have cash discounts. Like um, there are a lot of ways to make care kind of more affordable. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) Slightly, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the um, the tendency that runners have, you've already mentioned this, to kind of stick our heads in the sand and say, well, if I ignore it, maybe it'll just go away. Because if I know that it is something serious, then I'll have to stop running, I'll have to drop out of my race, you know, all this stuff. Um, I do think it's very human to like, if I, right, like if I close my eyes, I can't see it, I can pretend it's not there. But from a coaching standpoint, from a clinician standpoint, this is the opposite approach that is going to be beneficial for you in the long term. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that that zoomed out view can be really hard in the midst of a training cycle or especially right before a race. Um, and at the same time, I think most of us are in this. Of course, we all run to run fast. And I think, at least for me too, as I get older, longevity is is a big goal. And I think coming back to that as our North Star for most of us, you know, you can't, you also can't run fast if you're not able to run. So if we take a step back, you know, if consistency is the long-term goal and um, you've got clinicians and your coach 
And you, you probably know, you know, most of us have that gut feeling of like, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but there's a little rebellious spirit of like, but I can get through this. I want to do it anyway. But if you have that gut feeling, your coach and practitioners are telling you, you know, it is time to take a step back, which is often the case with bone stress injuries, um, then take, try to take that zoomed out view. Think of the, the long-term goals and know that, you know, there's always going to be another race and it's just not worth it, particularly with, again, I'm going <laughs> to say it, uh, it's like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, on repeat here, but particularly with these high risk sites, you don't want to mess with bone. Um, so I wanted to ask about, since we're, we're starting to see more research come out about the impact of carbon plate shoes on our mechanics and, and our injury risk and all these types of things, um, what do we know about the role that carbon plate shoes has in, I want to say, affecting our injury risk when it comes to bone stress injuries? So there's not uh, any that I know of randomized controlled trials. We randomized controlled trials, so we don't have high levels of evidence right now. I mean, uh, how do we even do that? I'm trying to think about that study design. It's like. <laughs> Divide. We're going to give half of you stress fractures. No, I'm just kidding. Right, right. And we have like placebo speed shoes. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how they'd run it or any longitudinal studies at this point. But um, from the early case studies or case series, it does, they do help make you faster by changing mechanics, particularly at the foot and ankle. Um, so with that said, knowing that bone likes gradual introductions to new or novel stresses. And, and this is going to be a new or novel stressor for particularly the foot and ankle. So introducing them super slowly um, and also starting with volume rather than intensity could be a good way to introduce them because this the one case series I'm referring to was on five navicular bone stress injuries, which is a high risk site, often needs surgery. And uh, it, it can take a while to diagnose that. So being cognizant of any midfoot aching, vague pain, if you are introducing these, um, is, is kind of a, a flag to get some treatment. Um, but just, just keeping in mind, if you have a history of bone stress injury, particularly of the foot and ankle, you want to introduce these very, very slowly. There's also some interaction, I think, between, you know, they do make us run faster, faster running, puts more stress on bone than does volume at easy paces. Um, so I don't know if we can even separate those two um, and how those, those necessarily interact. But I think um, just like any new stressor, you want to be very cognizant of, of the impact as you gradually reintroduce it. And again, you know, three to eight weeks later, not just the day after, two days after. I can also think, you know, the buying expensive carbon plate shoes, you know, we want to get the most out of them. We want to keep them as fresh as possible. So I know, you know, we say you know, a lot of runners will buy them and then the very first you know, maybe they'll wear them on a three or four mile run. And then the very next workout, they're doing like 10 miles with a bunch of stuff at race pace. And it's like, okay, you just went from zero to 60 essentially in these shoes. And not only obviously is the faster running more stressful on your body in your regular shoes, but you've added this additional change to the stress you're experiencing because you're doing it in the carbon plate shoes. Uh, it, and I think it's tricky because again, you can point to your friend and say, well, gee, they do all their stuff in this, or like they, they out of the box ran a marathon in these shoes and I ran them for more than for two runs and look what happened. You know, um, don't play the comparison game. <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> no, that, that is a huge thing to just, just keep in mind because 
if you have a history, just like we mentioned earlier, if you have a history of bone stress injury, it's going to be, your training's probably going to be a lot different or any of the other things we talked about. Your training's going to have to be a lot different than anyone else's. And even if you don't, gosh, everyone just responds so differently to the same training load. And even to the point that we don't have any global training recommendations for reductions in bone stress injury. Some people can run 100 miles a week. Some people can run 100 miles a week fast and are, are just, you know, I like to, I'm like, oh, they're God's favorites. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they have a different structure that's more, their bones are more tolerant of that. And, uh, you know, we've all got things that we deal with as far as our running goals or injuries. And uh, I think that that's important to keep in mind too. It can be really easy to get down when you're injured and think like you're injury prone or often we have providers tell us that we're injury prone. And I kind of hate that phrase because like if you're a runner, I mean, the, the, the common denominator with all of our injuries is, is running, right? If you're a runner, you're, you're going to be putting yourself at stake for a running related injury. That's just how it goes. Um, so it's easy to get that, get in that comparison trap, but that doesn't change, you know, what, what you need to do for your individual long-term running health. I want to ask you about, you use this phrase at the very, very beginning of a conversation that bone remodeling is a metabolically intensive process. And obviously you're not a dietitian, neither am I, but that to me says, well, if we talk about the role that nutrition plays, but in the remodeling process, adequate energy availability is really key. And I do know that for a lot of runners, right? Can't run. What do we do? Like, I'm not running as much as I was because I'm, I'm laid up on the couch with this thing. Got to cut back on what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. And then we're in this caloric deficit when our bones really need that energy. Yeah, that's such a great point. Yeah. So that's huge. And I think in within the running community, there are high rates of disordered eating and or eating disorder. And I you know, not all of this is a meets the criteria for a diagnosis or anything like that, but it is rampant in the culture of like, oh, I'm running to burn off what I ate or, or like, it's like I earned this because I did a long run. And that can really get you into trouble when you're healing and recovering. And sure, you know, if you're recovering from a bone stress injury, especially a high risk one, like you're going to lose fitness. That's just something to accept. You're not going to be able to maintain your same level of fitness through aqua jogging for 12 weeks or anything like that. And your body's going to change and that's that's totally okay. But you do need adequate carbs, protein, and calories for your bone formation to continue and the bone remodeling to heal even when you're you think you're expending less energy. I want to ask you about return to run programs and I want to talk about how we can improve our bone density outside of running. Um, something that I've heard from a couple runners that I've worked with over the years when they ha- are coming back from a bone stress, in- bone stress injury and they're being guided in that return to run program by a clinician is this sense of being offended at how like easy the program is like, uh, you know, oh my, this PT, she's, I'm only allowed to run for 30 seconds at a time. Then I have to walk for four minutes. Like I, I just ran a Boston qualifier three months ago. Like oh, this is so like, it's almost like offending their sensibility and their sense of self for who they are as a runner. And I would be like, that's a clinically recommended, like return to run program. Like that's how it's done, you know? Um, 
talk to us about why that is and why if no matter how fast you are or how much you ran before, your clinician's going to start you off on what might seem like a comically low level of running to start. Yeah, and that's that's because of the that looking at like an acute to chronic training load. If you've been off for four weeks, like sure, you ran a marathon four weeks ago, but if you did have a bone stress injury, now your bone is going to be more sensitive to lower levels of, of loading. Um, so it's, it's multifactorial, I think, uh, partly because we need to think about this is not the goal of that return to run program is not to get your fitness back. So that's also why we need to stay slow. And that needs, I feel like I have to say that a lot because when you have one or two minute intervals, everybody wants to run through them really fast. But you want to stay slow because you have to think about those little bone cells readapting to load. And whether that's from, well, it's from both, but the pull of the muscle on the bone itself um, and the ground reaction forces, all of those things create, again, this overload on bone that then it needs to remodel and recover from. So it's it's in comparison to what you'd been doing, you know, a little bit before. You don't want to take that load and just jump up um, because that sets us up for another bone stress injury. And we've also seen, this was just one study of um, recovery from tibial BSIs, that bone mineral density decreased in both the affected and the unaffected leg. So keeping that in mind, it's like, okay, so now we have this window where your activity level changed, your bone density or bone health may have been affected during that time. So we're concerned not only about the injured site, but also your other leg. We can't just go back to exactly where you were because we need to gradually build this up knowing that your, your bone density may not be as optimal as it was just prior to your injury. And so we need to be really be careful, especially in that initial six months, because um, in this study it took, in some people it took up to 12 months to return to, to baseline. But um, we just need to to be cognizant once again of that that big picture and knowing that your risk is higher. The ultimate goal is to reduce your risk long term so that you can consistently run and that sets you up for PRs. So it's that that zoomed out view, I think, is the the, the big factor there. Another reason that we are preaching consistency over like these, we call them hero weeks, right? Or like these giant swings. And I see this too with runners who, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with not being like super serious about the sport. Like I don't, I don't care what your racing schedule looks like, but I do care if all you do every year is spend five months training for one race and then you take seven months completely off from all exercise. And then you train for five months for this one race. And then you take seven months completely off from all exercise um, because all the risk factors are increasing, right? Our risk of soft tissue injury, risk of bone stress injury. Obviously, we're not doing the best we can in terms of we're trying to improve our performance over time. Like being having that consistent loading over throughout our training year so that we we can use it and not lose it is really key. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and with those hero weeks or that boom bust cycle, it can set you up for this kind of like, oh, I'm in a rush. You know, I only have this much time. I need to get back and can set us up for that, that injury cycle to just keep continuing. You said something recently to the effect of running alone was not enough. Running does not provide a great enough stimulus to really improve your bone density after an initial period of improvement. Am I saying mm -hmm. that correctly? Am I paraphrasing? <laughs> yeah. So 
Bone cells respond really interestingly to loading. So uh, there's one study, Stu Warden is a, a researcher for um, University of Indiana, I believe, and has done a lot of studies on bone health. And he said that running was too boring, was one of his quotes. So bone cells become saturated really quickly. And by, by stimulated, it means like that is there, like we talked about earlier, the targeted remodeling stimulus. So after just 20 to 40 loading cycles, so essentially like, uh, 20 to 40 hops or something like that, the bone's like, okay, we're done. We, we're going to stop responding and kind of become silent after that. Um, so at a little bit into your run, your bones are like, okay, we're not going to keep adapting. Like we're used to this stimulus now versus ball sports like soccer, basketball, you get these short bursts of high impact multi-directional loading that they tend to respond to really well. And, and that causes more of that targeted remodeling. And that's why those who play those sports as adolescents tend to have higher bone mineral density and are more resistant to bone stress injuries later in life. So if your goal is to build bone, just running isn't gonna do it. If you don't wanna build bone, like sure. But if you would like to build bone, then engaging in heavy strength training that creates that short, strong stimulus or other high impact loads like plyometrics or things that produce a lot of force in a, in a quick amount of time or a short amount of time are going to be the optimal stimulus for an osteogenic or bone building effect. Now, obviously, the plyo makes sense because you have ground uh, ground forces and you have the uh, you know muscular contractions, right? The stress in there. Mm -hmm. The heavy lifting is that all from the muscle interaction on the bone? That's where the uh, stress comes from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some of the the optimal parameters. Most of these studies have been done in postmenopausal women to try to reduce bone density loss. Um, some of them have been done in premenopausal populations, but um, it has to be a high percentage of one RM to get that. So it's it's that quick, strong muscle contraction. So over 80% of one rep max is where we like to be for that. And it's some some studies have shown like sets of four by five or three by eight has also been proposed, but it needs to be a heavy stimulus. There's, and we're not, I'm not getting into a debate about strength training, but you know, the whole thing of like, well, any strength training is going to be beneficial. This is true, right? When we talk about, well, if you're strength training to complement your running, it's going to be more effective if it is heavier load, lower rep. You don't need to do 25 of something. You get plenty of that endurance stimulus because you are a runner. It's like the whole point is the running is this endurance sport. But you're taking it a step further and saying we are we will want to focus on this specific type of heavy load, low rep lifting for bone health specifically. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So this is not... We, we can't make the jump that this is going to reduce your risk of bone stress injury. We can't make the jump that this is going to reduce your risk of other injuries. Um, the evidence isn't super clear on strength training's impact on running-related injury in general, but it can help improve your bone mineral density, which hopefully would decrease your risk of, of bone stress injury, but um, that's, not, that's not been something that has been that I know of has been thoroughly studied or that we have causation for at this point. But if, yeah, if you have a history of low bone density, um, if you have a history of osteoporosis in your family, then it might be helpful to engage in heavy strength training. I'm thinking of just longevity, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I think oftentimes, again, going back to that, you said, you know, runners will ignore something until literally like they can't run anymore. You know, I think so oftentimes when we talk about running and, and we talk about the performance aspect, and like, if you want to run fast, if you want to run far, you have to do these things. 
But at the end of the day, we're trying to set you up for this optimal longevity so that you can run in your 80s so that you aren't going to fall and you're less likely to fall and break a hip, right? So we're talking about reducing all-cause mortality, especially as we age. What are the things we can do to do that? Improve our muscle mass, improve our bone density, improve our aerobic health, improve our you know balance and proprioception. Like All of these things that also go into making us the runners that we want to be are going to help us age into the people that we want to be when we're older. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, gosh, that's, that's huge to think about because I, I understand, you know, as runners, it's, uh, it can be kind of boring, you know, or even intimidating to go into the gym and it's not our favorite thing. Maybe we can't get out of our heads as much as, as we want to, or we can on a run. Um, but 100% when you, when you look at, okay, what do I want for my life? Not just my running life, but, but long-term strength training is, is in, incredibly beneficial for, for multiple systems, even cardiovascularly. And they've done, you know, studies on adding strength training for elderly populations and it improves their depression. Like there's so many positive effects. I think one of the part I was thinking about this too, like how can we convince runners to strength train more? And obviously some people have no, they're like, I actually prefer strength training. Like mm-hmm. I'm running my side hustle, you know, but I think for a lot of people, it comes down to this. This is my theory, right? Totally unproven, totally untested. This thing about like, sometimes we struggle to do things that are unfamiliar with us because we're, we don't want to be bad at them, right? We're not used to being new at something. And even for us, you know, who started running as adults, we went through this learning curve, you know, we, we were like newbies and then we learned some stuff and now we're we're like, oh, you know, and now it feels more natural. It feels more like normal. This is who I am. I'm doing this for years now. But then you say, well, you got to go step in the gym. You have to learn the new lingo. You have to learn what all these things do. You have to learn the movement patterns. You have to know what's normal and what's not normal. You have to learn a kind of a, say a different kind of suffering, right? When you're trying to go for that, you know, eighth and final squat, that's different from the pain, the suffering you feel at the end of a marathon. And that, that I think for some people, it was a really big, like, I just, I'm not, it's, it's not their comfort zone. And so it's something that they avoid because it doesn't feel natural. They're not quote unquote good at it. Um, but it's okay to be new at something. It's okay to not have something mastered. Like we all start at, you know, step one, whenever we start anything new. Yeah, absolutely. We forget that, right? If you, when you started running, it was probably unnatural or it didn't, you know, didn't come as naturally to you and you got through that awkward phase. And I don't think it helps to, uh, you know, put some of the onus back on healthcare professionals and fitness professionals that we there's a lot of talk about squatting correctly and not, and you know bending not bending this way and not doing it like this in the wrong form and as long as you know if people are feeling okay you know everyone's got different structure you can squat with your feet slightly turned out or excessively turned or very turned out you know it it's not going to look the same for everyone because we're also structurally different and getting in the gym and, you know, not, not aiming for perfect or, or not being afraid of hurting yourself because someone told you that if you do it like this, you're going to blow out your back. You know, there's a lot of like fear mongering, I think out there too, when it comes to lifting weights. So if we as health professionals and and medical uh, providers can take away a lot of the false narratives that come with with what's surrounding lifting weights, I think that would also help people feel more comfortable getting in there. 
Yeah, it doesn't help that I've, I've talked about some previous episodes before. If you you know venture into the more weightlifting side of social media, right, which is where a lot of us get a lot of our kind of baseline information. I try to provide good stuff. I know you do too, right? Um, but there is a lot of that, you know, like you said, fear mongering. You know, this this one exercise. Like if you're doing it like this, you're it's gonna ruin all your gains. And it's like, okay, well, that's not just that's not true, right? Like. If it hurts, stop. But there's a really wide, you know, margin between technically not perfect form for this exercise and oh my god, this hurts. Absolutely. Yes. And and we can trust our bodies for the most part to tell us the difference and just like with the running progressions, if you gradually progress load, your body can adapt to um, you know, if you go in there and just throw on 35s on both sides and start squatting for the first time, it might be, might be too much, but a gradual and logical progression is, is going to be adaptable for you. The very best thing I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned this earlier, uh, that there's no evidence that we know of that s- talks about the relationship between running form, uh, and bone stress injury. And I wanted to kind of dive deeper into that because I think for a lot of people are really concerned about, you know, fixing their form or like having the perfect form with the implication that then if I run incorrectly, you know, I'm going to injure myself, which is true. Like there are principles of good form. There are ways to run badly, right? If you're like bounding and overstriding, you know, and doing things like that. But, um, yeah, tell me tell me more about what we know about uh, injury, bone stress injury, and running form. Yeah, that's a great question. There was a study in 2021. Um, O'Leary is the name of the the first author. That uh, their their final quote, their conclusion was that kinetic and kinematic variables may influence bone stress injury risk, but there's no evidence that changing or trying to change mechanics can influence bone stress injury occurrence. So. It comes back to, I think, this this cumulative risk profile that all the things we've talked about go into. And, and so we all kind of have this bucket of our risk for bone stress injury and, you know, throw in things like history of eating disorder, history of amenorrhea, current low energy availability, history of bone stress injury. And then maybe at the very top is, you know, you've got uh, one one calf that's weaker than the other or <laughs> something like that, that it's it's going to be, yes, these variables can influence it. But we don't know if actually changing your mechanics or how changing mechanics could change your risk for BSI. Um, With that said, things that I I don't know that I think would be interesting to continue to explore are are increases in cadence, the impact on more proximal fractures. So if you are someone who's had recurrent bone stress injuries of the hip, um, increasing your cadence can reduce load at the hip and knee. So maybe that would move some stress to the foot and ankle. Now, would that create an increased risk for BSI at the foot and ankle? Potentially. Um, But at your areas that may be more susceptible because you have a history there, would that offload them enough that 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 doesn't recur? and then, like you mentioned, with uh, increasing cadence, that has that seems to benefit loading at all joints. Um, so I think that that's something avoiding or reducing overstriding can be a good strategy for anyone at any time to to manage or prevent potentially reduce risk of injury. Um, but when it comes to the specifics of of BSI, there's still a lot of work to be done as far as gait, and uh, I think that's 
that can be probably used as a, a positive thing because that puts the onus back on how do I get these foundational things right and not think too hard about the way I run or put kind of this blame on like, oh, I'm a weird runner and that's causing this. Um, not to mention it is really hard to change your gait and and it can imp- negatively impact performance if if you're thinking too much about how you're moving. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me. I think anybody who participates in, in any sort of like large running event, you know, you go and you're watching all types of bodies run in very different ways. Right. And, and even looking at, I'm thinking about elite runners, like you can watch track meets and some of the best runners in the world. And everybody runs a little bit differently for the most part. And like, that's all, it's obviously all working for them. And I think, you know, we make this assumption that like, oh, that person runs like this, you know, they're going to get injured. And that's, you don't know that you don't actually know that because that genuinely might be the most efficient way for that person to move. And if I were to go up to that person and say, we need you to change this about your form, we need you to change your foot strike, we need you to change your arm swing, like that actually could cause issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And our bodies are so, so adaptable that yes, like you said, that might be the most efficient way. That's the way their body figured out how to run. And obviously they they're doing something or they've progressed gradually enough that all the various tissues have adapted appropriately, especially, you know, the, the world, the marathon record, these elites where like, obviously they've been consistent enough to have all these miles under their belt that they're performing well. So yeah, we can't, we can't predict that just from seeing someone run. Dr. Steph, thank you so much for being here today. This was a ton of fun. We're out of time, but I I feel like I had so much more that we could dive into because this is really freaking cool. Um, If somebody is interested in learning more about running and bone health and your work, where can they do that? You can find me on Instagram at stephmunt, M-U-N-D-T dot D-P-T. Um, you can also go to my website at volantept.com, V-O-L-A-N-T-E-P-T.com. And that's going to be linked in the show notes. And what do you do? Like what services do you provide? I provide in-person physical therapy and hybrid rehab here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I also do virtual rehab consults and uh, high, or virtual coaching and performance as well as rehab. Very cool. I love that the virtual space is, is opened up opportunities for people to work with the people who are best suited for their needs, even if they are across the country or on the other side of the world. Because I think, um, especially for runners who live in maybe smaller areas of, of the country or in just different parts of the world where there aren't all these resources for like amazing running specific services, having somebody online who knows what they're talking about, it can feel very like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone in this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.